The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, the feast he, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you very much for that wonderful reading of the passage today. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim, and I serve here at Christ Press as the uh, scholar in residence, and it's my great delight and privilege to open up God's word. Uh, Thank you for the prayer, Deacon Mike, and uh, as um, many of us are aware that um, places of worship are not necessarily safe places. And we uh, found out to our utter shock and horror that uh, 50 um, Muslim um, sisters and brothers lost their lives uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand. And it really is uh, a cold-blooded act of cowardice. And um, it really causes us to, causes us to think about the world we're living in, the kind of peace that we desire. And before we uh, look at God's word, I'd like to uh, spend a minute in a moment of silence and prayer. But as we do so, I want us to also remind us of um, an anniversary that is happening this year. In 2019, as this is, uh, this is 2019, it is the 800th anniversary of an event. So if you're uh, steeped in the Protestant tradition, you're probably aware that 2017 was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Perhaps much less known is the 800th anniversary of the Mission of Peace by St. Francis of Assisi, who actually, in October 2019, traveled to uh, Damietta, Egypt, um, and had a uh, three-day conversation with the Sultan, Sultan al-Kamil, Uh, He went there with a peaceful mission of uh, seeking to convert the sultan to Christianity. And the sultan also received him warmly, and they had a three-day, real deeply engaging conversation. And uh, I think that's really the way to do it, to really engage each other with respect and dignity 
and see convergences as well as divergences, realizing that um, we come together uh, seeking peace and seeking God. So if it is okay with you, let's take a moment of silence, remembering uh, those who have lost their lives and who are also in hospital care, and let's also pray for the peace. Let's take a moment of silence, and I'll uh, pray for us. Gracious God, we recognize that we are like grass that's here one day and gone the next, and yet you imbue our life journey with some semblance of meaning and joy and hope and faith. We lift up our hearts and prayers for those who have lost their lives in the very place of worship, a phenomenon that is becoming more and more common to our utter horror. We ask that you will be reigning supremely as the prince of this world, of this peace that we so yearn for. Whatever nationality, whatever culture, we do yearn for that peace. And we pray for the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be the comforter and the giver of all wisdom and insight and into your comfort that we so crave. Pray that as we look to your word now that you will be magnifying yourself and opening up your scriptures to us so that we may be encountering the living Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So we have been going through this sermon series called Encounters with Christ for quite a while now, and today we come upon these two characters that uh, will be the... Um, point of our consideration and reflection, they are Pontius Pilate and Barabbas. Admittedly, there is more known about the former than the latter, and Pontius Pilate was a middle-of-the-road Roman governor who, according to the testimonies of both the Gospels, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote in the first century himself, was an odious individual, somewhat obnoxious guy who was particularly insensitive to Jewish concerns and customs. Josephus noted with sadness that when Pontius Pilate, quote, brought his army from Caesarea and moved it into winter quarters at Jerusalem, he intended to subvert the Jewish customs by introducing to the city busts or statues of the emperor that were attached to military standards or flags when our law and religion forbids the making of the images. Unquote. So not a very culturally sensitive ruler or emissary or representative of the Roman Empire as it sought to rule with relative benevolence to further actualize the goal and ideal of Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Barabbas, on the other hand, is shrouded in a greater darkness of history or the lack thereof. All we know is that he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Knowing the procedures for Roman law for individuals such as Barabbas, he had no rights, he had no hope, he had no life besides those spent in the stench of the Roman dungeon with a plethora of dehumanizing experiences and degrading of his sense of self for the crimes he had committed. In other words, all he had to look forward to was that one day 
somebody will take him outside and make him go through that experience of execution by Roman fiat, of crucifixion. We'll develop these characters a little bit more in the sermon, but as we get started, as I often do, I wanted to let you know what these three quick points are today. Three points. First is, don't be that guy. Point number two, you are that guy. Number three, he became that guy. All right? Don't be that guy. You are that guy. He became that guy. Point one will be rather obvious to most of us. Uh, don't be that guy. Point two will kick up, a, kick up a notch, the sense of surprise, as you and I are likely to ask ourselves, what do you mean you are that guy? Point number three would be most surprising of all, as we will reflect on the point, he became that guy. The first point, in fact, the shortest point of the three is this, don't be that guy. As we have heard this story, it is admittedly hard for us to identify with either Pontius Pilate or Barabbas or both. Most parents or teachers do not encourage their children or students by saying, now nah, we want you to grow up and be just like Pontius Pilate, PP, or like Barabbas. Don't hear that. It is rather hard, although not completely impossible, to find Christian names that have Pilate or Barabbas as part of their names. I don't know if you ever met someone named Pilate or Barabbas, and that probably proves that point rather simply. Throughout the history of Christian preaching, many priests, pastors, bishops, and others have lifted their exemplars, the examples of Pilate and Barabbas, as the kind of people that you don't want to be like. Don't lead your life like that. Don't live your life like that. Whether it is a 4th century sermon in Constantinople, or a sermon in 16th century Geneva, or 20th century Seoul, Korea, or 20th century Wheaton, Illinois, the sermons and preachers that I've looked at all converge on this point. When you think about Pontius Pilate or Barabbas, basically the point is, don't be that guy. If that's all there was to the Christian message, we'll be very, very happy in that the sermon will be over in less than 10 minutes and we can go right to the Lord's Supper, but that would be a huge act of truncation of the truth of the gospel message. The gospel message isn't simply an ethical injunction that tells us don't be that guy. It's much more than that. What did Pontius Pilate do or what did he not do? Let's look at a few points of his life as we think about don't be that guy. First, it's clear from the text that was read for us that he seemed to have known that Jesus was not as guilty as charged. He seemed to be pretty clearly aware of the fact that here is an innocent man caught up in this trumped-up charge and is going to the gallows. Two, moreover, it seems that Pilate was at points also amazed at the silence of Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I'm brought to a court, right, and I'm charged under these false pretenses, the last thing I'm going to be is be silent. I'm going to be very defensive. I'm going to do my best to, you know, extricate myself from the snares that have been placed upon me, and that will be my goal. The silence of the lamb is eerie indeed, isn't it? Third point, 
he knew that it was, not, it was out of self-interest, as our text tells us, out of self-interest, if not envy, that the crowd had handed Jesus over to him. So he knew what these people are up to. He knew deep inside that Jesus was innocent. He was also amazed at the silence of Jesus. So let's see what he does. Number four, he was furthermore warned by his wife. As it is recorded in the other gospel, uh, one of the other gospels, Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, it reads, she said to Pontius Pilate, sent him a message saying, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So not only did he have this internal conviction as he encountered Jesus, not only was he amazed at the silence of the Lamb, silence of Jesus, he also knew that it was out of self-interest, but he should have really listened to his spouse. She said, don't do anything silly with that man because I had a nightmare because of this guy. He's an innocent man. Number five, he washes his hands in front of the crowd as a symbolic act indicating that I am not guilty, it's on you, right? He wants, so if, let's think about that. He is, he's doing, he's going that far to show that he's innocent, meaning that he knew deep inside of his soul that he's doing something not right. He was doing something wrong and says, okay, I'm going to basically extricate myself from this guilt by washing my hands. It's a, that act of ablution is in many cultures seen as an act of cleansing, understandably. And so he does it as a symbolic, powerful symbolic gesture, communicating both to himself as well as to the others that I am guilty of this thing that I'm about to do. Number six. He did not really do this, I think, for political gain, although he was known for, a very, uh, uh, for his barbarous act against the Jews. So in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that you know, Pilate had mixed the blood of some of the Jews after he had done this dastardly act of you know, basically killing the Jews in their temple. And so Pontius was not a popular guy, but Therefore, perhaps the pressure of the leaders and the crowd really did get to him. So peer pressure or people pressure really cooked him up good. So three things, basically, cowardice and being pressured into doing things that you actually know are not right, and thirdly, evasion of responsibility. So the point that I've read in many sermons is don't be that guy because don't evade responsibility, don't act cowardly, don't be pressured into doing things that you actually know are not right. What about Barabbas? Rather simple and terse. He kills somebody, so do not murder and become a, such a bete noir that, you know, people write about in the history of Christianity. So the first point, like I promised you, is rather short. Don't be that guy. Let's then move quickly to the second point of the sermon. You are that guy. Dale Bruner, who is a New Testament scholar who taught for many decades at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, has this really wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what he said about Pontius Pilate and how we are in many ways no different from Pilate at all. He writes, Pilate is not innocent of this blood any more than anyone else is. The commander of the Roman legion should not succumb to mob rule. Pilate is as guilty as sin. All the water in the world cannot wash innocent blood from a guilty person's hands, though Pilate tried. 
Only blood removes blood. If Pilate repents, as the church teaches, the water of baptism, which is blood red, will wash all his guilt, guilty stains. But protesting innocence saves nobody. Only confessing guilt does. I don't know about you, but as you're listening, to, uh, going through the first point, don't be that guy. Perhaps you're like me. As we listen to stories about Pontius Pilate, as we think about Barabbas, there's a, there could arise a sense of smug ethical superiority. I am better than Pontius Pilate. I am certainly better than Barabbas. So we need the reminder of the second point. You are that guy. I am that guy. Some of you are Shakespeare fans, and you know and love Macbeth. It's one of my favorites of Shakespearean plays, and it is there we encounter a character named Macbeth, who is a traitor and a treacherous mur and murderous Scottish general who becomes blinded by his passion for power and ends up killing Duncan, right, the king. In Act 2, Scene 2, he's haunted and wrecked by his guilt. So he cries out, whence is that knocking? Because he's always bothered. He hears things, people knocking on his door. How is it with me when every noise appalls me? What hands are here? Huh, they pluck out mine eyes. With all great Neptune's ocean, will all great ne Neptune's ocean wash away this blood clean from my hand? No, this ha my hand will rather the multitudinous seas in incarnadine, making the green one red. He says, you know, I'm hearing things all the time, and my hands are stained with blood red, and if I were to go to the ocean, Neptune's ocean, and try to act, wash away my hands in that ocean, it'll make the green ocean red. What about his wife, Lady Macbeth? How does she answer this tormented and tortured soul? She says, my hands are of your color, but I shame to wear a heart so white. I hear a knocking, but it's okay. A little water clears us of this deed. A little water will clear us of this deed of regicide, killing the king. Not so fast. Because if in Act 5, we see the same lady, Lady Macbeth, now in deep torment and anguish, in infernal madness where she cries out, yet here is a spot, out, damn spot, out, I say. One, two, why then? This time, do do it. Hell is murky. Fie, my lord, fie, a soldier and afraid. What need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? And here's the punchline. What will these hands never be clean? No more of that, my lord, no more of that. You mar all with this starting. Here's a smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Yes, friends, I am that guy. You are that guy. We are that guy. Guilty as charged, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. If we do not recognize that it is for us and for our salvation that Jesus had to die, that we are guilty as charged, either of self-sense of superiority and pride and self-righteousness or the sense of inadequacy and inferiority, for both of which Christ came into this world. 
So not only do have we encountered Pontius Pilate, we have also seen Barabbas, and we'll develop the character a little bit more in detail. But there is also the third group of characters in play, and they are the crowd. So what do they say? They say these two words twice. Crucify him, crucify him. So as the black spiritual song asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I want to ask us the same question. What would you have done if you had been there when Jesus is being crucified? Let that question sit with you for a second. How would you have responded if you saw your teacher and your Lord, someone you have seen feeding the multitude, someone you have seen casting out demons and healing the sick, someone who had done, really exemplified and embodied God's mercies, and he's now hanging on a cross. What would you do? What would I do? Soren Kierkegaard says these things. He's a Christian philosopher, a Danish Christian philosopher, one of the leading existentialists. He said, if I had been there, this is what I would have done. Three things. One, I would know that he's innocent. I would know that here's an innocent man hanging on a tree as a symbol of what? Roman execution and Roman demonstration of power. We can do with anyone we please, and here's a sinner. So I will know that he's innocent, but also at the same time, I will be equally aware of my own fear arising deep within of my own life. Because if I side with this Jesus and say, here's an innocent man, what will the crowd do? They might turn around and say, crucify him as well. So I will know that he's innocent, but I would also know of my own fear creeping from deep within, and therefore I would walk away silently and shamefully, knowing that here's an innocent man who has been crucified, and there go I. I don't know about you, but I found those words so hauntingly true. Because if I had been there, if I followed Jesus for three years, I might have been just like Peter, Right? I might have been just like what Kierkegaard says he would have done, knowing that Jesus is innocent but fearing for my own life. I would have walked away shamefully but knowing that he is innocent and deeply, deeply mourning the loss of my teacher and my Lord and my Savior. I am that guy. Aren't you that guy? That leads us to the final point of this morning's sermon. That is, he became that guy. First point, don't be that guy. Second point, you are that guy. But best of all, he became that guy. According to a refugee pastor in Geneva in 16th century, John Calvin, these are his words about the substitution. So for him, so in the history of Christianity, two major motifs that really explain the nature of Jesus' death and his atonement have been Christ the victor as well as Christ the substitutionary atonement. So Christ really, pardon my French, but beat the hell out of death, right? He kind of, he, his death basically beat the hell out of it, right? Of death. So that, that's one way of looking at Christ as the victor. The other is the Christ as the substitute. And the one that we are kind of focusing on this morning is Christ as our substitute. He became that guy. Calvin says, God's son stood trial before mortal man, namely Pilate, and suffered accusations and condemnation that are rightfully ours, that we might stand without fear in the presence of God. Jesus took that which is mine, and we get that which is his. 
That is the alien righteousness. That's not your own. That's not something that you can concoct from within. That's not something that you can manufacture out of your own self, righteousness and exertions of morality. None of that would suffice. So um, how do we think about that he became that guy? So about a month and a half ago, I was driving on Belmont Boulevard as I'm usually taking that route to go home or to go to school. And so, and, and I love music and I'm, you know, listening to songs almost all the time. And so I'm in the car and a song came on and one of, one of the uh, artists that I like is, uh, her name is Adele, right? And she's pretty well known, I think, and I really like her music. So I'm listening to the song for the first time and I'm thinking, oh, this is Adele's new song. So this is how it goes. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I am not enough. And, you know, she had me at the first line. You know, sort of like, you know, a, a, a Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello. Like, she had me at the first line. Like, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Because I don't know about you. But I have plenty of those voices that tell me I'm not enough. That no matter how hard I try to be a good whatever, I'm not enough. So the second line that she sang was, every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. So after I heard those four lines, I pulled over to Lipscomb University's parking lot, pulled out my phone, and I Googled the phrase, Adele, new song, boom. And it turns out that it's not Adele. So it's a, a singer named Lauren Daigle, and it was a song called You Say. I don't know, I mean, how many of you know that song or like that song? Okay, all right. So since about a month and a half ago, that became like my favorite song. I've listened to it about, I don't know, 50 times or so. And just that song really captures for me, at least, the essence of my own daily struggle and the essence of God's provision in Jesus Christ because he became that guy. So the song goes on to say, you say I'm loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I'm falling short. When I don't belong, you say I am yours. And I believe, I believe what you say of me, I believe. Wow, it just blew me away. Because I don't know about you, but I struggle with my own sense of inadequacy, my own, you know, sense of, not measuring up and never being enough, and all of that is a daily struggle for me. I don't know if you're there at all. Some of you are smiling and nodding. I'm taking that you also know what I'm talking about. And so, the Lord says, I am loved when I don't feel that way. The Lord says, you're strong when I feel like I'm weak. The Lord says, I'm holding you when I feel like I'm falling apart. The Lord says, I, you belong, when I feel like I don't feel like I'm belonging anywhere, and I believe, I believe what you say of me, I believe. Because Christ took my place. Christ became me. He became that guy. So let's talk a little bit about Barabbas, okay? Barabbas, did you know, is the only person in the history of humanity who could say, Jesus really bore that cross for me, Right? Because what was going to happen? Barabbas was going to be the guy who was going to be crucified. But then in this kind of crazy kangaroo court exchange between the crowd and the leaders and Pontius Pilate, they say, let Barabbas go. So imagine yourselves, and let's imagine myself being Barabbas. I'm sitting in that stinking dungeon, and I know I'm going to die. I know that's my fate. 
And I hear these powerful and haunting words, crucify him, crucify him. And guess what? I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is my day of damnation. I am doomed today. And guess what else? Rather than me being led away to be crucified, I see somebody else. And I know that I'm a wicked man, but I've also heard of in the last three years that this teacher named Jesus, some guy from Nazareth, doing some amazing things, teaching some wonderful things about God and self and so on. And I am witnessing something really, really incongruous. I should be dying. This guy who is innocent and wonderful teacher is being led away crucified, and he's thinking to himself, I knew there was injustice in this world because I'm an unjust man, but then I'm seeing the height of injustice being carried out, and I'm walking scot-free, and now Jesus is going to the cross. You see, friends, Barabbas experienced the power of substitution. Literally, at the point of his would-be death, he walks away free, and instead Jesus goes to the cross. You see, friends, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas because Jesus became Barabbas for us. You know the name Barabbas means son of the father. Bar meaning son. Abba meaning father. That Barabbas, son of the father, Jesus takes that guy's place. The son of the father, the son of the father, the eternal son of the father, heavenly father, became Barabbas for not only for Barabbas' sake, but for you and for me. Therefore, the Apostle Paul, writing a little bit later, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. What we don't have is righteousness. And what Christ had, a plenty was righteousness. And God made Christ sin as a substitute. He became sin for me. He had, I mean, think about it like this. The intensity, the highly concentrated, you know, the universal weight of sin was hanging on Jesus' cross and on, on himself. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt the weight of that abandonment and the, and the separation and alienation that sin would bring upon our lives. The sense of inadequacy, the sense of alienation that I feel daily is nailed to the cross. So Christ, Paul says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we become the righteousness of God. Crazy substitution, isn't it? And so we ask, and can it be? One of my favorite hymns of all time is written by Charles Wesley, and it goes, and, and it's entitled, And Can It Be? It goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who causes pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Note these words, friends, that thou, my God, should die for me. It wasn't the, the paragon of human virtues or divine wisdom who died for me. It is none other than God himself who would put himself in our place and dying in, in my substitution. In my substitution, in my stead, he died for me. Therefore, we can say, you know what? All that Christ is, I am his. All that Christ has, I claim it for myself. Doesn't that sound crazy? If it doesn't sound crazy to you, you are crazy. 
It should sound crazy. I mean, like, how can it be that I can claim all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has for myself? And yet, precisely, that's what the gospel declares, that Christ's righteousness is mine. Christ is suffering because of his suffering. I am now able to, on the one hand, deprived of suffering as penalty for me, but at the same time, in my act of imitatio Christi, imitating of Jesus, I can follow him in the journeys of suffering, if need be, if that's what God calls me to be. So let me conclude. So we have heard that moral exhortation, don't be that guy. And that's important to remember at one level. Don't act out of cowardice. Don't evade responsibility. And don't be pressured into doing things that you know is wrong. And you know what? Have you ever done that? I have. I've evaded responsibility. I've been, you know, pressured into doing things that I know wasn't right. And I act cowardly. So me and Pontius Pilate were best buddies, bosom buddies. I am that guy. So both Pontius Pilate or Barabbas and me and you the only cause of plea we can have in the sight of God in the divine courtroom is that Christ became that guy for me. May that hope, may that faith, may that love transform our hearts as we seek the Lord in our Lenten season, knowing that Christ hungered for our sake in order to fill us with that heavenly manna as you're about to receive it. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we mourn the death of so many around on this planet Earth who die of natural death, who die of unnatural casualties, all of these things are reminders of the frailty and fragility of our life, but also at the same time they remind us of our one only comfort in this life is that we belong both body and soul to you our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. As we participate in this wonderful Eucharist, a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, help us to know that it is his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for me and in my place and in our places. Thank you for that wondrous transaction. We love you for you have loved us first. In your name we pray. Amen.